it's Wednesday, the 31st of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. President Yoon Sung-yeol has warned that North Korea will attempt to interfere in the April general elections with fake news campaigns and cyber attacks. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Coming up, we have the second half of our special in-depth series on the nation's record low birth rate. Today, we assess the competing plans recently presented by rival political parties to address the issue. And then on Korea Book Club, we discover a moving novel about a mother and daughter relationship by the celebrated writer Cho Hye-jin. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. As we count the weeks and days to the April general elections, President Yoon Sung-yeol warned of submersive meddling and hostilities by North Korea while denouncing regime leader Kim Jong-un's nuclear obsession and disregard for his people's well-being. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, jang So exactly 70 days to go till the April general elections, and President Yoon has warned of election meddling by North Korea. Can you give us the details of his warnings about what's to come from the regime? Sure thing. President Yoon says North Korea will try to interfere in the general elections using fake news and other cyber warfare means. This is what he had to say on Wednesday while presiding over the annual civil military defense meeting with some 170 officials from the government, military, police and other related agencies. For the past 70 years, the North Korean regime has consistently sought to bring down South Korea's liberal democratic system, and in years with important political events, it has always carried out social disturbances, psychological warfare and provocations. This year, we expect to see many provocations aimed at interfering in our elections, including border provocations, drone infiltrations, fake news, cyber attacks and rear area disturbances. Yun said the meeting itself is a warning against the North. During the session, he called for airtight collaboration between civil and military agencies to prevent the regime from affecting the elections. In recent days, the North claimed to have tested hypersonic ballistic and cruise missiles and other nuclear weapons. Before such provocations, it even designated the South as its principal enemy. Here's what the president had to say about the current state of the reclusive regime. The North Korean regime is an irrational group which has legalized the preemptive use of nuclear weapons to become the only country to do so in the world. If it was a rational regime, it would have abandoned its nuclear weapons and searched for ways to improve people's livelihood. However, it is only recklessly aimed at maintaining the family succession of the totalitarian regime. Meanwhile, U.S. officials are reportedly concerned Kim Jong-un could take lethal military action against South Korea in the coming months, but they did say a full-blown-out war on the peninsula seems unlikely for now. South Korea's ambassador to the U.S., Cho Hyun-dong, said Seoul will not be swayed by Pyongyang's continued provocations and will continue to strengthen cooperation with the U.S. and Japan. That's right. He was speaking to reporters in Washington on Tuesday. He said the three sides will continue to bolster alliance amid the North's continued provocations and rhetoric. The ambassador said Seoul will strive to create a strategic environment in which North Korea can return to dialogue while enhancing extended deterrence with the U.S. 
He also raised concerns over recent Moscow-Pyongyang military cooperation and said Seoul and Washington maintain close communication on the matter with other allied nations. Okay, let's turn to the domestic political arena now. The main opposition Democratic Party chief, Lee Jae-myung, vowed to ensure his party win big in the April general elections. He feels the victory is necessary to overcome what he calls the crisis caused by the Yun government. What else did he say? He made the pledge on Wednesday in a New Year's press conference at the National Assembly. He believes, North Korea, he believes South Korea faces crises in public livelihoods and the economy, peace in the population and democracy. The DP chief highlighted that the government should resolve crisis, but instead has created them, warning the administration's policy will cause continued budget cuts for welfare, education, regional development, as well as R&D. He stressed the country must end politics of death and restore the politics of life to save the people, the economy, peace and democracy, hope and the future. He presented energy, science and technology as a core of the country's growth and future, emphasizing the importance of guaranteeing basic quality of life. On North Korea, he condemned the continued provocation and called on Kim Jong-un to cease hostilities. And on the other side of the political aisle, People Power Party Chair Han Dong-un prioritized the chip sector and expressed willingness to provide greater support for the industry. He did at the Korea Advanced Nanofab Center in Suwon on Wednesday. The PPP chair said that both the party and the top office are ready to support the work of Leaders in the industry stress industry leaders, not politicians, lead the country and mention plans to create a semiconductor cluster in southern Gyeonggi province. He highlighted the importance of carrying on the proud history of the chip industry and moving forward into the future. Meanwhile, a Seoul court sentenced independent lawmaker Yung Guan-suk to two years in prison. That's for his role in a bribery scheme to secure the leadership for former DP Chair Song Young-gil ahead of the 2021 party convention. Can you tell us more? On Wednesday, the Seoul Central District Court ordered a two-year term for the DP-turned-independent lawmaker on charges of violating the political party law. A Kang Negu, former head of the Institute of Internal Auditors, was sentenced to one year and eight months, a fine of six million won, or around four thousand five hundred U.S. dollars, and the forfeiture of three million won. The court said the duo attempted to win over party delegates by offering money to sitting lawmakers and heads of regional party offices during primaries, posing a threat to democracy by distorting the decisions of party members and the public while undermining transparency and fairness. Yoon was indicted for taking 60 million won from officials in Song's election camp to be distributed to sitting DP lawmakers out of the convention in May 2021. Kang, a key member of Song's camp, was accused of delivering Yoon's bribery orders and requests to Song's then-aide Park Yong-soo, who then gave Yoon 20 cash envelopes containing 3 million won each in April that year. He was suspected of distributing 94 million won to lawmakers and regional heads. Let's get some business news now. Samsung Electronics has reported a fourth-quarter loss of more than 2 trillion won, 1.5 billion US dollars, in the semiconductor business for an annual loss of some 15 trillion won last year. So some big figures there. Can you tell us more? It is indeed. In a regulatory filing on Wednesday, the Korean tech titan estimated its operating profit reached 6.56 trillion won in 2023. That's down 84.8% on year to fall below 10 trillion won for the first time in 15 years, the last time being the 2008 global financial crisis. Annual sales slipped 14.3% on year to 258.93 trillion won, with net profit plunging 72.1% to 15.48 trillion won. 
For Q4, operating profit dropped 34.4% on quarter to 2.824 trillion won, um, much lower than the market estimates of 3 to 4 trillion won. Sales and net profit marked 67.77 trillion won and 6.34 trillion won, respectively. Meanwhile, Japan's antitrust regulator approved the merger deal between Korean Air and Asiana Airlines. The companies move one step closer now to sealing the deal. That's right. According to Korean Air on Wednesday, the Japan Fair Trade Commission approved the deal worth 1.8 trillion won, or 1.34 billion U.S. dollars, to become the, lar- the, the latest com- competition regulator rather to grant the necessary approval. That makes 12 regulating agencies giving the go-ahead. They await the response from the U.S. and the European Union. In November 2020, Korean Air agreed to acquire a controlling stake in Asian airlines, meaning they could create the world's 10th largest airline by fleet. Turning to sports next, South Korea defeated Saudi Arabia 4-2 in a penalty shootout to advance to the quarterfinals of the Asian Football Confederation Asian Cup. It was a close call, right? It was. The match kept fans on edge and a number of skeptics continued to grow during the match as well. However, on Tuesday for the Sweet 16 match of education on at Education City Stadium in Qatar, the Taegu Warriors, despite being on the brink of elimination, bounced back. Cho Gyu-sung substituted and scored the equalizer with the clock winding down, forcing extra time. Neither team found the net, taking the game to a penalty shootout. Goalkeeper Cho Yanu, who seemed a bit rusty having to answer the call ahead of the recent games due to the mainstay goalie's injury, was looking like his 2016 self again with two saves. Come Saturday, Korea, coached by Jurgen Klinsmann, takes on Australia for the quarterfinals. The team from Down Under are hungry to win another Asian Cup title and break the dry spell that continues since 1960. That's where we're going to wrap up our news briefing. Thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 1.72 points, or 0.07% on Wednesday, to close the day at 2,497.09. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, shedding 19.62 points, or 2.4%, to close at 799.24. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 5.21 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,334.61. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, we have Global News Roundup. This is our daily segment where we look beyond Korea and delve into some of the stories making headlines around the world. Joining us for that in the studio is our KBS World Radio News Editor, Koo Hee-jin. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, Jang. So once again today, we begin in the Middle East. That's because Israeli forces have killed three members of Palestinian armed groups in a hospital But it's not in Gaza, where the war has been raging, but in the occupied West Bank. And the manner in which the Israeli forces carried out their attack is causing a stir as well. What can you tell us? Well, according to CNN, BBC and the Associated Press, as well as other major outlets, Israeli special forces dressed as civilians and medical staff infiltrated the Ibn Sina hospital in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin on Tuesday. They killed three Palestinian men 
men, according to Israeli and Palestinian officials. Security camera footage shared on social media showed around a dozen commandos, men and women, disguised as nurses, women in hijabs, and others with uh, one pushing a wheelchair and another carrying a baby car seat. They stormed the hospital corridor carrying assault weapons. The hospital said the three men were uh, sleeping at the ba- at time of the attack. One of those killed was claimed by uh, Hamas as a member. The other two were claimed by uh, Islamic Jihad, another militant group. And Hamas said all three were also Janine Brigade fighters, a umbrella group of armed Palestinian factions in the West Bank city. So what was the reason for the targeted killings? What have Israel said? Well, the Israeli Defense Force said it targeted Hamas fighter Mohammed Jalamne, who had recently been involved in promoting significant terrorist activity and was hiding in the hospital. It said he was planning an imminent terror attack inspired by the October 7 massacre and that he was found with a pistol. Two brothers linked to the Islamic Jihad, Mohammed and Bazel al-Ghazal, were also killed, according to the IDF. Palestinian state news agency WAFA reported, however, that the disguised uh, special forces infiltrated the hospital individually, headed to the third floor and assassinated the young men. The attack has raised concern on the part of NGOs as it was undertaken by special forces in a hospital. What have they said? Well, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, the guardian of the Geneva Conventions, which codify international humanitarian law, pointed out that under the convention, hospitals and medical patients should be respected and protected at all times. It said it will raise the issue as part of its confidential dialogue with concerned authorities. Tuesday's killings represent one of the boldest uh, Israeli raids since the war began. Tensions have soared in the West Bank since October with near uh, daily Israeli arrest uh, raids and clashes with Palestinians. Uh, Janine, a militant stronghold, has been a focus of such raids for months. Since October, Israeli forces have killed at least 357 uh, Palestinian uh, militants, civilians and attackers in the West Bank, while Israeli settlers have killed at least eight, according to the United Nations. Palestinians uh, from the West Bank have killed at least 10 Israelis in attacks in the West Bank and Israel in the same period. Yes, it seems tensions in the Middle East are continuing to build on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to the US next, where a Delaware judge ruled Tuesday that Elon Musk is not entitled to landmark compensation package awarded by Tesla's board of directors, which was potentially worth more than $55 billion. U.S. dollars. What can you tell us? Well, according to AP and Reuters, the ruling by Chancellor Kathleen St. Jude McCormick comes more than five years after a shareholder lawsuit targeted Tesla CEO, CEO Musk and directors of the company. They were accused of breaching their duties to the maker of electric vehicles and solar panels, resulting in a waste of corporate assets and un, uh, unjust enrichment for Musk. The shareholders' lawyers argued that the compensation package should be 
be voided because it was dictated by Musk and was the product of sham negotiations with directors who were not independent of him. They also said it was approved by shareholders who were given misleading and incomplete disclosures in a a proxy statement. An attorney for Musk and other Tesla defendants did not uh, immediately respond, but Musk reacted uh, to the ruling on X, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, that he owns by offering business advice. Never incorporate your company in the state of Delaware, he said. And he later added, I recommend incorporating in Nevada or Texas if you prefer shareholders to decide matters. Now, the ruling was certainly a surprise as investors thought it was just legal noise and nothing was going to come out of it. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that a few investors took on Tesla, Musk and the board and succeeded. Indeed. And Musk, who has topped uh, Forbes' list of the world's richest people, denied during his trial back in November 2022 that he dictated terms of the compensation package or attended any meetings at which the plan was discussed by the board, its compensation committee or a working group that helped develop it. And earlier this month, he challenged uh, Tesla's board to come up with a new compensation plan for him that would give him a 25% stake in the company. On an earnings call last week, Musk, who currently holds 13%, explained that with a 25% stake, he can't control the company, yet he would have strong influence. McCormick determined, however, that because Musk was a controlling shareholder with a a potential conflict of interest, the pay package must be subject to a more rigorous standard. Yeah, so Musk making uh, appearance on our Global News Roundup for a second day. Mm. And finally today, there's a report that Chinese leader Xi Jinping told US President Joe Biden that China would not interfere in the 2024 US presidential election. The exchange apparently took place when the two leaders met in November. Can you elaborate? Well, according to a CNN exclusive, the conversation took place during a high-stakes hours-long meeting in California that was aimed at easing historically high military and economic tensions between the two superpowers. And the assurance was reiterated by the Chinese foreign minister to Biden's national security advisor this past weekend. CNN cited two uh, people familiar with the conversations in November who described the exchange as brief and that it was Biden who raised the issue. In a meeting this past weekend in Bangkok with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan again brought up the topic. Wang offered Sullivan the same assurance she had given Biden months prior that Beijing would not meddle in the American election this fall. Well, US officials have been on high alert regarding foreign election meddling since 2016 when Russian intelligence agencies hacked the Democratic National Committee and then released emails to damage Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Right. And CNN reports that the potential for China to interfere or influence U.S. elections has repeatedly come up at senior level meetings between the two nations in recent months, citing an unidentified source. Now, since the 2016 incident, Iranian, Cuban and Chinese agents have all been active in trying to influence U.S. elections, according to public U.S. intelligence reports, though none of those efforts 
have been aggressive as a 2016 operation by Russia. Even if China refrains from interfering in the 2024 election, Beijing's hackers are still a potent force with a foothold at the key U.S. infrastructure. For several months, U.S. national security officials have publicly warned that Chinese cyber operatives have burrowed into computer networks in maritime and transportation sectors, access that Beijing might use to disrupt any U.S. military response to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Now, the White House National Security Council has so far declined to comment on whether election interference came up in the Biden-Xi and Sullivan Wong meetings. Right, that's all for our Global Roundup today. Heejin, thank you for the stories and we'll see you tomorrow. See you again. Way to, way to percolate. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java. I'm Barista Omburam and the winner of the 2023 World Barista Championship. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. I said those ritty footy beans. Next is part two of our two-part series exploring the crisis of South Korea's chronically low birth rate. Last week, we delved into the causes of such a demographic challenge. And this week, we'll hone in on what can and should be done to tackle this issue. And that's with the help of two guests who were on our show last week as well. They're back. Uh, This comes in light of rival parties unveiling their own plans recently to address the issue ahead of the general elections in April. Let's bring in our expert guests now. Joining us in the studio, first we have economics professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea. Professor Yang, hello. Hello. And we also have with us once again Professor Kim Joon from the KDI School of Public Policy and Management. Her academic focus is on social demography, gender and work. Professor Kim, hello to you too. Hello. Okay, so two weeks ago, rival parties unveiled their plans to tackle the country's low birth rate. Professor Yang, could you remind our listeners the gist of the measures announced by the ruling People Power Party and the main opposition Democratic Party? Okay, let's look at the uh, People Power Party first. They have uh, first established a ministry of population. And second, uh, there will be compulsory one month leave for both new parents and government assistance during that leave will be increased from 1.5 million won to 2.1 million won. Uh, Third, uh, they will have medical days off for parents in case of medical emergencies for their children, five days per month up to third grade. Uh, Fourth, mandatory flex time for parents. Fifth, uh, 
allow reduced working hours for parents up to two hours per day with no cut in pay. Uh, six, increase allowance for the company when hiring temporary re uh, replacement workers. And seven, for people not eligible for current unemployment insurance, they will set up a new uh, welfare type system to uh, give money to people like uh, who's doing freelance uh, that may uh, not currently covered by unemployment insurance. Uh, then for the Democratic Party, first they will uh, establish a ministry of uh, emergency population response or something similar. Uh, second, a uh, new monthly government payment for parents, uh, 200,001 direct payment until child is 17. And then payment into investment account for the children up to about 100,001 per month until child is 18. Uh, public child care services will be expanded to all households instead of just for uh, poorer households. Uh, and then fourth, guaranteed childbirth uh, and child care leaves. Uh, and there will be assistance given to small and medium-sized enterprises when parents take their time off. Fifth, a priority for public housing, which the renter can later purchase. Uh, the size of the housing that they can get depends on how many children they have. And sixth, a uh, so-called marriage birth child care package. Uh, you'll be able to get a hundred million won loan when you get married, uh, but uh, the interest will be forgiven if they have one child. 50% uh, of the principal will be forg uh, forgiven when they have another second child, and all principal and interest will be forgiven if they have a third child. Right, so the PPP has focused their plan on improving things like parental leave, while the DP have placed their emphasis on financial assistance and affordable homes. So, Professor Yang, what's your assessment of their plans? Okay, with the possible exception of that 100 million won loan program, I'm not sure if they're trying anything that's different from what they tried before. Uh, I am somewhat happy that they're concentrating on people who have children instead of uh, every young couple. Uh, perhaps Professor Kim will disagree, but I think a substantial uh, si uh, percentage of those young people do not really want to have kids. So it, it'll be money down the drain if uh, we give them too uh, expensive incentives. Rather, uh, try to get uh, people who already have children to have more children. I think that is an easier way to go. Uh, but then the problem is uh, the money that's being mentioned here, uh, it's not really enough, I think, to overcome the uh, cost of raising children. Uh, it's not uh, nearly enough to overcome the uh, child penalty in lifetime pay. So uh, they will, uh, people who have children and people who have even more children, I think they will still suffer from an economic shock. So I'm not sure if uh, these methods will be uh, very effective. Mm. Uh, and uh, then uh, both uh, parties promise more bureaucracy, uh, new ministry. Uh, I'm not quite sure if that's uh, something that we want to do, uh, it may end up that we may pay. F uh, we may end up paying more for these ministries than actual help for the uh, parents. Professor Kim, what's your assessment of these measures and perhaps some of the uh, concerns that Pres mm -hmm. uh, Professor Kim, uh, Professor Yang, has laid out as well? So first of all, I'm. I was very glad to hear that finally the government is not talking about the providing short-term cash benefits that wasn't effective at all in the past, and then they start recognizing the importance of work-family balance and life stability for young people. So I do have concern for each uh, PPP and DP. 
So in terms of PPP, they are now focusing on this promoting work-family balance, especially trying to involve men into this parental leave. And when it comes to mandatory father's leave, there is mixed empirical evidence, whether it's effective in boosting fertility. There is a lot of evidence that actually uh, implementing mandatory father's leave was not effective in boosting uh, fertility. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't you know, implement this policy. Um, there's interesting recent study in South Korea that actually men who have taken parental leave compared to men who haven't taken parental leave express lower fertility decline for a subsequent child. Interesting. Okay. Because, you know, they've experienced how difficult it is to raise a child <laughs> and they don't want to have a second child. I see. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's other issues, right? There's um, a problem with the income replacement level. It's too low in Korean standard. And then the men, maybe they're facing greater penalty when they go back to work and all this kind of thing. They're, they create uh, uh, exacerbate men's concern. But, you know, in Korean context, providing father's leave might not really be effective in boosting fertility. That's something that I'm concerned. Okay. And of course, like you mentioned, this is solely focused on promoting work-life balance for married couple and then not talking about singles. That's one of my concerns. And regarding DP's um, intervention for low fertility, um, so they are focusing on housing support. I guess they're more like uh, interested in establishing more life stability for young people. And then uh, based on recent study, it is effective. So when you expose this information that, oh, there's going to be housing support by the government, then young people's intentions to have children and marry increased, in fact. So but the problem is that whether it's feasible, it's mm. too expensive, and then whether we have enough resources and money to support all these new schemes. And then also housing is not the only source that hinders people's uh, uh, mobility, you know, the fear about the potential downward mobility. So there should be also reconstruction in the labor market conditions, but none of these parties are talking about, um, you know, um, changing the labor market conditions for young people. Well, clearly, it seems both of you have uh, doubts about some of the uh, policies announced, the effectiveness of them. Professor Yang, let me turn back to you now. So from an economic standpoint, what more do you think should be done then to try and resolve this issue of countries' low birth rates? So what more would you like to see? Okay, well, uh, I am concerned that uh, because you're giving all these advantages to uh, workers who are parents, the, uh, there might be some discrimination against uh, w new workers who may become parents or who are very likely to become parents. Uh, now, uh, you may uh, make it illegal through law, but there's always a way to get around it. Uh, so if you give too many advantages to uh, potential parents or young parents, uh, the companies may find ways to get around that by not hiring parents, so that may make a situation even worse. Uh, right, so, so for example, you wouldn't hire a young woman who's just got married, you're saying, because there's a risk of them going on leave. Right, unless they, uh, unless, uh, for example, uh, they do not get married, so you have much preference over single women than married women. Mm. Uh, so, uh, we want, uh, so, uh, there, if you give too much uh, preference to uh, potential parents without giving the uh, companies some kind of benefit, uh, then you may not uh, have much increase in fertility because, well, the uh, companies will not hire mm. these people and their income will stay low. Uh, 
So uh, you need to have, I think, more uh, benefits to the companies who may be paying for these uh, uh, benefits. Uh, and then, uh, as I said, uh, some families will never want children. Some people will never want to get married because of the uh, psychological effects that we talked about last week. Uh, so personally, I am happier that they're concentrating more on people who have decided to have kids rather than uh, every young mm. person. Uh, and then uh, we, the, there's preference, uh, pref preference for uh, housing that was mentioned in Democratic Party's plans. But if we look at that type of housing, the type of housing that they're talking about, right now only about 10% of those housing are allocated toward uh, families with kids. So uh, even if they do offer this package, unless they change that percentage, I'm not sure if there's going to be enough housing units available. Uh, and then uh, the type of money that they're talking about, I'm sure that it's going to be a lot of drain on government resources. But from the family's point of view, it's nowhere near going to be enough to cover the raising the kids and uh, the uh, income cut that the uh, parents may be forced to take because they're raising the kids. In some sense, uh, it's only natural that we have more, uh, less children, less fertility, because uh, when you have children, your costs go up at the very same time your income goes down. Mm. Uh, so I think uh, there should be much more resources given uh, to uh, parents to make up for that lost uh, income and increased cost. But also, you have to make it definite over a long period of time. If we're not sure that this whole policy is going to change with the next administration, they're still not going to have kids. Uh, and then, uh, even if you give money to these uh, parents, unless you have uh, more supply of childcare facilities, uh, you're just going to raise the cost of childcare if you give these parents money. Uh, you also need to increase the supply of uh, child street care facilities. Uh, we're reducing the number of schools, so maybe some of that uh, schools could be turned into child care. You have to make sure that there's a lot of these uh, infrastructure for children available. Otherwise, uh, even if you get more money, if you can't find child care, uh, you're still stuck with the same problem. Right. So it seems that while you're not against some of these uh, policies from the government, you're saying that more needs to be done hand in hand with those policies to make sure that they're effective. Professor Kim, what about you? From a social and demographic standpoint, what more do you think needs to be done to tackle the country's low birth rate? Um, it's a very difficult question. So when it comes to very low fertility, uh, within high-income country, there's two types of country, one egalitarian country and one non-gender egalitarian country. And then only non-gender egalitarian country touch this total fertility rate below 1.3 level. So gender is one of the key uh, answer to that question. Then the question, another question is then how can we make our society more gender egalitarian, right? Uh, campaign is not going to work. And we need to then we need to challenge the institutional norm that continue to uphold gendered division of labor. So I would say there's a term called ideal worker norm. Ideal worker norm is the corporate assumptions that, you know, workers are there to prioritize work over other responsibilities. They don't have other responsibilities such as family and they will be available all the time, you know, be ready on a business call and all, all these kind of things. We need to break that assumption. And then 
it's especially important for men because for men, if they violate this ideal worker norm, the men experience greater penalty in their workplace compared to women. So, for example, if women take a certain month of parental leave, then it's considered to be, okay, she, she has done something that she has to do, right? But if men took some month of parental leave, then it's considered to be, he's not loyal. Uh, to the company. So there is a greater penalty for men. So if unless we challenge this ideal worker norm, the equal distribution of paid and unpaid labor is not going to happen in South Korea. And then one way to do it is to change um, our work evaluation to performance-based evaluation. And then it sounds very radical to many uh, companies, but for of course, it's not applicable to every sector, but most white-collar sectors, it is possible to change this evaluation for uh, that is based on the performance only uh, without being present at work from nine to five, you know, being inflexible in terms of their work hours. And then uh, if I have time, then there's another thing uh, such as gender war. We didn't uh, tackle this issue through the interview, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, distrust between men and women over these political issues, over the gender issues. And then... Um, uh, in the last election, politicians have uh, made this issue to um, gain more votes, and then uh, they somehow contributed to this polar political polarization over the gender issues. And then now it's time for us to make a more constructive discussions about how to make a more healthy uh, relationship in terms of our gender relations. And uh, um, it's right. not just women; it's men also expressing a growing distaste about gender relations and family institution in South Korea. So for both men and women, we need to have a healthy discussion about the gender relations. Well, that's leading to uh, people marrying less. And mm. of course, that means less uh, children as well. There have been examples of other countries that have managed to turn around low birth rates. For example, Sweden, uh, Sweden's total fertility rate uh, the latest figures stood at 1.52. That's twice as high as South Korea. Uh, Stockholm suffered the lowest birth rates in Europe during the 1930s, I understand, and made various efforts to tackle the issue. Are there lessons that South Korea can learn from Sweden or any other country that suffered this issue? Or, as you said, is it because of the fact that Sweden was able to embrace a more egalitarian society uh, quicker? Um, yes. Uh, partially, it's uh, their egalitarian um you know, the gender culture, but I'd, I'd like to be cautious when interpreting Swedish case. And first, when they suffer very low fertility rates uh, around 1930s, they, it's because they were at the forefront of demographic transition, not necessarily. They were special compared to other countries. Few years, few years later, every country follows Swedish decline, fertility decline. And another thing is that Sweden implemented multiple pronatal policy, uh, but there's limited evidence that this policy has been effective in boosting fertility. So so-called success in the early 1990s uh, in terms of Swedish policy intervention, many scholars view it as a statistical fluke. So a change in policy regarding especially eligibility for parents' insurance had just short-time effect on reducing the time interval between the first birth and the second birth. So it means that it did not motivate you know, young people or unmarried people to have children. So it has limited impact in increasing the number of children that they have. 
And then Sweden is different from South Korea. They have immigrants and immigrants population, they tend to have higher fertility rates. And then this country never fell below zero point uh, uh, 1.3 level, so it's quite different from the Korean case. But there are still things to learn. So Swedish family policy, unlike South Korea, have never uh, been directed at encouraging childbearing. So they were more focusing on strength- strengthening women's labor force participation, attachment, and social equality. So the focus has been establishing individuals so to pursue their family and career options without being too constrained by institutional factors. Mm. So um, if Korea adopts this kind of an individualistic perspective in establishing more, you know, um, more richer life in terms of their career and then family, then um, maybe we can boost our fertility. Right. We've been talking about this issue for almost uh, 40 minutes, including last week and this week. But I still feel like we're just really scratching the surface. There's so many more things that we can talk about. But to try and uh, wrap things up for now... Uh, Professor Yang, do you think we can turn the situation around in Korea? Well, it depends on what you mean by turning the situation around. Uh, I think uh, Korea reaching 2.1 replacement rate is impossible. No advanced country have done that. Mm. Uh, So Korea is still going to have to deal with declining population. It's just how fast. Now, we, I think uh, with appropriate policies, we can get back to perhaps lower one range. So 1.2, 1.3, but that's going to take a lot of reforms. Uh, Professor Kim talked about gender reforms, but I want to concentrate more on uh, economic reforms. Uh, I, we talked about labor market, uh, rigid labor market being maybe one of the biggest problems before. So we need to make the labor market more flexible, uh, perhaps uh, in order to make housing more available to younger uh couples who have children, maybe if you have uh, children, uh, the uh, real estate housing transfer tax may be exempted so that they can move into better housing uh, more quickly. Uh, and uh, the perhaps uh, if we have more uh, flexible labor markets so that people can uh, be uh, moved from bad jobs to better jobs easily, we may see higher uh, women's employment and uh, less education costs for children. Uh, So that may be one factor, I think, very important factor in trying to uh, increase the fertility rates. But we've been trying to have labor market reforms for decades, and it's not been successful. So I question whether we'd be able to do that, even if it means uh, we live with fertility rates below 1.0 for a long time. Right, unfortunately, we are out of time, so we are going to have to leave it there. Uh, we've been speaking to Professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea and Professor Kim Joon from the KDI School of Public Policy and Management. Thank you both for your time this week and last week, and hopefully we'll speak to you again both soon. Thank you. Thank you. We continue on now to Korea Book Club, our weekly segment where we dive into the world of literature and books, usually through works available in translation. But 
This week it is our special monthly edition of the club where we are joined by literary translator Beth Unhi-hong. She's here to introduce another current bestseller or notable work that has not yet been translated so we get a sense of the current literary scene and trends in Korea today. Beth, hello, it's great to see you again. Good to see you. Hello, chang and everybody listening. Okay, so what have you brought for us this month? This month, I've brought the novel Kyoru Jinagada, or Passing by Winter, by Jo Hye-jin, published in December 2023 by Chakka Jongshin. Okay, so let's first briefly talk about the author Jo Hye-jin first, because she is an interesting figure. She's a celebrated author who's known for featuring socially marginalized characters such as sexual minorities, refugees, victims of state violence, and the homeless. Can you tell us a bit more about her and her other works? Of course. Um, Jo Hye-jin was born in Seoul in 1976, and she got her bachelor's in education and her master's in Korean literature at Iwa Women's University. She began her writing career in 2004 by winning the Literary Jungang New Writers Award for the novella Yojaege Kiril Butta. And as you said, her works spotlight the relationships and dynamics between the haves and have-nots in contemporary South Korean society. To date, she has published six novels and five short fiction collections and has won prestigious literary awards such as the Shingdongyap Literary Award, Lee Hyo-seok Literary Award, Daesan Literary Award, and most recently, the Dongin Literary Award in 2022 for A Perfect Life or Wanbyokan Sengye. Yeah, so now we have her latest work published very recently in December. Understand in this work, she has focused on the themes of grief and mother-daughter relationships. Can you tell us a bit more? Yeah, so this story centers on a woman named Jonghyun who spends a winter mourning her mother who has passed away from pancreatic cancer. The novel has been especially popular among female readers in their 30s here, thanks to not only the author's existing readership, but also her plain, unvarnished writing style. Readers may find themselves caught off guard by some of the very deceptively simple one-liners or descriptions about life, death, and relationships in this novel. Right, so this book has particularly touched a nerve with female readers then. I understand the narrative is structured in three parts and three seasons, right? That's right. Uh, the novel progresses through some of the changes of the seasons, from Dongji, the longest night of the year, to Tehan, the coldest day, to Usu, when it warms up and winter becomes spring. In Dongji, the first part, we see Jonghyun's mother's gradual, then sudden decline into a coma. And Jonghyun, who has been splitting the care duties with her younger sister, Mian, and Mian's husband, drops everything to move to her mother's rural uh, home in Gyeonggi province. And she spends her days walking her mom's dog, Jungmi, and grappling with her shock, anger, and guilt at her mother's passing. And then in part two of the novel, uh, Jonghyun meets someone in the village who ends up becoming an unexpected companion, right? How does this unfold? Yes, uh, she meets a carpenter named Youngjun, who her mother commissioned to make a doghouse for her dog, Jungmi. Their relationship unfolds in this slow, subtle way, like in a Hong Sang-soo film, if anybody out there is a fan <laughs> of indie film. Um, eventually, in Usu, we learn about Young Jun's own experience of loss and grief, and how it brought him to give up his life in Seoul to become a carpenter in the countryside. 
Right, at this point, it almost sounds like it could turn into perhaps a, a Nicholas Sparks a romance uh, <laughs> novel. But then I understand that it takes uh, quite an unexpected turn uh, when we learn a bit more about Young Jun's backstory, touching on a rather distressing topic, social topic here in Korea, the issue of kodoksa, or lonely deaths. That's right. Uh, before he became a carpenter, Young Jun worked for a construction company, mostly dealing with housing contracts that required him to occasionally break down doors of homes where people overstay their leases. And this work means that sometimes he had to force enter homes where socially isolated, isolated people have died. One such encounter with a young man in his 20s named Taehyun permanently scars Young Jun and prompts him to quit his job and start over as a carpenter. And as you said, this touches on a very real and sad phenomenon here in Korea. The number of Koreans dying alone has risen 8.8% over the past five years to over 3,300 in 2022, meaning over 1% of people who died last year did so alone. And according to the health ministry in 2023, the number of people at risk of lonely deaths in Korea is estimated to be about 1.5 million. Yes, this is not an issue that we've covered on the show recently as well. It's that concerning trend, the fact that the number of lonely deaths seems to be increasing each year is what has uh, really uh, gotten us concerned. So true to her reputation as a writer who spotlights uh, socially vulnerable groups, this novel looks like it is bringing greater awareness then to socially isolated individuals in Korea. On a personal note, though, can you tell us why you chose this book in particular? So it's twofold. First of all, this is a book that's set in the winter. So I simply wanted to review a book that suited the current season. And the title was actually what caught my eye at the bookstore. And secondly, uh, I'll actually be moving back to my hometown of Vancouver, Canada after 11 years in Korea. So a major part of my decision to move back was because I wanted to be closer to my mother, with whom I've had a pretty complicated relationship with until recently. Yes, this is something that I was going to mention at the end, but this is going to be our last Korea book club with you, understand, because you are moving back to Canada. So it seems like this is going to be uh, quite a turning point in your uh, life as well then. I know that uh, before you go, you wanted to highlight some books for us that helped spur this decision as well, uh, some recommendations for our listeners. Yeah, um, I think the most impactful books in this regard were that I read were Being Mortal, by Atul Gawande. And one of the books that I picked um, as one of my top reads for last year was If I Had My Life to Live Over by Kim Hinnam. Um, both of those books were really impactful and helped help me in you know, uh, reflecting more about big life choices like this one. And if I may diverge a bit into non-Korean book territory for a moment, um, I really, really recommend Being Mortal, which is an excellent nonfiction work by an Indian-American surgeon about end-of-life care and how to prepare for death of oneself and one's loved ones. It um, got me really reflective about how I could live my life with greater clarity and wisdom given the inevitability of death. Well, on a personal note, it's a shame that we'll no longer be getting your insightful recommendations each month, but we wish you uh, the best in the next chapter of your life. Uh, thank you for telling us about today's book, Kyo Ru Chinagada, Passing by Winter by Choi Jin. And thank you for all of your recommendations over the past couple of years or so. We really appreciate it. Good luck in Canada, and thank you once again. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and to everyone at Korea24 for their amazing work. 감사합니다. And that wraps up our show for today. Join us again tomorrow so you can continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.
KBS World Radio.